please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 29. We are into the life of Jacob. Jacob is one of the more colorful characters in the Scriptures. That's um, probably an understatement. And he has just come off a spiritual high, maybe the first real spiritual high of his life, I'm sure, given what we know about him before he has this dream of the ladder, so-called Jacob's ladder. That dream confirmed for him, coupled with God speaking to him, that God is not just a legend or a myth of Abraham and Isaac. He is the God who is near. He is his God who has made promises to him, covenant promises. And this is very personal and life-transforming for Jacob to have this encounter with God. And it changes him. Now, yes, it has changed him, but this is still Jacob. And Jacob has shaping influences over the years, a way of working in the world, a way of viewing things that will die hard in his life. Spiritual maturity for any one of us um, will involve some hard knocks for sure. The the chiseling effect will have some pains at times. It doesn't mean God doesn't love you. In fact, it's a sign of God's grace to you that he works things in your life to take off those rough edges. And Jacob has a lot of rough edges. And we're going to see this in the passage. And it affects not just him but other people as well. It's the, the hard truth about the road to spiritual maturity. But the latter, in that dream, that spurs him on to trust God for whatever's coming next. Even though he was alone, even though he couldn't go back home because of Esau, he had a mission to find a wife and to prepare himself for whatever it was that God would do with him next, knowing that God had promised him to make him a great nation just the way he had promised Abraham and Isaac before him. Now let's turn to Genesis 29 and I will read God's inspired, inerrant, holy, and authoritative word Verses 1 through 30 of chapter 29 in Genesis. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban the son of Naor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day, It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's 
kinsman, and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him into his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and I will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, the the ministry of your Holy Spirit uh, is necessary for us to understand and apply your holy word. So we ask for that ministry now. May we be shaped by your truth. May we grow in faith and obedience and humility as we experience more of your grace. More of your grace is what we need. So I pray for this in the name of Christ. Amen. I love what Kent Hughes says about Jacob. It's a saying we have in our family about people as well. He just elaborates. He said, Jacob was a piece of work, but he was also a work in progress. What takes place here and in the following episodes is the ongoing education, equipping, and completing of Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob is not the same person he was before he met God in that dream. He now knows that God is personal and has an interest in his life. He was once a practical materialist who thought only what you could see is what there really was, and he shaped his life about maneuvering those things in his favor. But now, because of the vision and God's word to him, he knew that there was a spiritual reality that laid under all that he could see physically. So he knew God was actively involved in his life and personally promising the blessing of Abraham to go to him. The very thing Isaac had hoped for before he left. 
Jacob realized that in the dream. So now his life and his view of, of what's going to happen next in the activities and the occurrences of his life, they're shaped by this idea of God's promise of providence. To this point, he has not been a man of strong faith at all. Maybe no faith at all until this encounter. He has not been a humble man. He's not been an obedient man, not to God's, God's uh, standards by any means. Think of all the things he did in deception and such. He's not been concerned for God's will in his life to this point. To some degree, we can relate with Jacob. Even if you're in the faith, you have rough edges, maybe things from the past or your influences around you that make you think and act a certain way. You know the Lord's working on you. Those things are getting honed, the rough edges chiseled off. But still, there's hard knocks that come with this. And Jacob puts this in full display. Really, spiritual progress or growing spiritually, becoming more mature spiritually, this means growth in our faith in God. This means growth in our humility before God. This means growth in our obedience following God. And all of this still comes with a heavy dose of God's constant grace. And that's what's on display, I believe, in the life of Jacob for us in this chapter especially. I want us to take the first half of the passage and think of Jacob's faith or his lack thereof and what that means, then also his struggle with obedience that's on display again. Then the second half of the passage, let's consider the process of humility that God works in Jacob's life, the trials that come into his life for Jacob to grow and learn more about himself, and then also, all the while, having an eye to the grace of God that is constantly needed for Jacob to be the person God calls him to be and for the promises that God has given to him to actually come to pass through his life and family. Let's first look at this need for growth in faith and obedience in his life and by connection, our own lives. Let's look at the passage. It's a colorful passage to say the least. Jacob has met God personally. He's heading off now to go towards the Ur of the Chaldees where Abraham, his grandfather, is from. Isaac went to find his wife, Rebekah. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field. Now, you've got to imagine that his parents told the story over and over again of how they met. I'm sure you do that in your own household. How'd you meet mom and dad? Or how'd you meet aunt and uncle? And we tell the story. The story of how Abraham's servant, probably Eleazar, was sent to find a wife for Isaac, and he went to the well. A well is a communal gathering place where you're going to meet people who are part of the, the larger community. You'll get the picture of what's happening there. Yes, it's for the flocks, but people also go to get their own water there. And throughout antiquity, wells were places where lots of city interaction and in, uh, in social uh, interchanges happen. And here he is, and he sees this well. It's a different than the well that Eleazar was at looking for Isaac's wife, but nevertheless, the same dynamics occur. You'll notice something about this scene. There are these flocks laying near this big opening to the well with a stone, a heavy stone on it. And the flocks are laying there, and the, work, the shepherds are laying around there. And he's, Jacob's wondering, you know, what's, what's happening here Exactly. So he says, my brothers, where do you come from? They said, we are from Haran. 
He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. Now, I want to pause for a moment and make a point about where Jacob's faith is here. I believe it's safe to say he has faith based on that dream in his heading on to the journey with his outlook. But I want you to notice a difference between his actions here and Abraham's servant, that elder man of God. Do you remember when that servant came upon the well, he stopped and he did what? He prayed to God for clarity about what wife would be provided for Isaac. He poured himself out to the Lord. And he even gave the Lord some suggestions. It would be great if this woman came and she, she watered the flocks and he, he, he had a picture of what he thought it would help him know God's will. Point is, he wants to know God's will. Whereas in Jacob's case, I'm not saying he has no spiritual mind here. I think he does. But he doesn't begin with prayer here. He's not thinking and going to the Lord. Okay, I'm to the place I need to be. Here's this well. Um, Help me, Lord, to be discerning, to know what your will is. Instead, the natural tendency for Jacob, it might be this for you as well. Depends how long you've been walking with the Lord and growing. Your first tendency might not be to seek the Lord for what he would have you do. We all can relate with this at times. And here you have Jacob going to what he knows best, casing a situation, figuring out what angles there are, what people are here, who's coming and going. He's already working the scene. Again, I'm not saying he doesn't have a spiritual mind about it, but he's really going on his own strength here to some degree, it seems. Certainly if we compare it to the way Abraham's servant found a wife for Isaac. It's interesting what the Scottish Presbyterian commentator Candlish says. The school in which Jacob had been brought up in had too much of the world's craft and jealousy and too little of honorable, not to say heavenly, singleness of eye and generous warmth of heart. Cunning and stratagem over openness and boldness had been Jacob's training. Now we return to the interchange, verse 5. Do you know Laban, the son of Naor? We know him. He said to them, is it well with him? Is he doing okay? It is well. And see, hey, by the way, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. So there's already sheep there. The stone's over. They're waiting for all the sheep to gather. Now, this is interesting because Jacob calls them out because he's trying to figure out what they're doing there, just laying around with the sheep when they need to be watered. And here comes Rachel. Rachel, the shepherdess. Jacob says, behold, it's still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go. Pasture them. They said, we can't until all the flocks are gathered together. When they all get here, then we'll roll the stone and then they'll get watered. He's calling them out in some laziness. But then verse 9, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep. She was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the son of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near, and Jacob rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Kind of a bit of a, a display. Usually take a bunch of the guys to move the stone. He's a foreigner. He comes in, he sees her, and he moves the stone himself. Kind of me, he, man kind of thing for Rachel to see. He's thinking now, it seems, by his actions in verse 11, This must be from God. He doesn't say it out loud. Again, his faith is still underdeveloped at this point. But he clearly sees something providential here. 
and he kisses her. And this is not a romantic kiss. This would be more the greeting kiss, the same way Laban kisses him in a little bit. And he weeps aloud. He's not afraid just to show how happy he is that it seems as though his fortunes have really turned in the direction of God's clear favor and blessing. Look, this is Rachel. Immediately he sees her as some kind of answer, at least an answer to the relative uh, that, that now I've met Laban's household. But it's got to be more than that, and we see how that is as it unfolds. Then Jacob tells Rachel that he, that he was her father's kinsman. Again, remember, this 4,000 years ago. It was not unusual to marry within each other's clans like this, especially since the Lord did not want Jacob marrying in Canaan. So he tells her that he was Rebekah's son, verse 12. And she then hears all this, startled, no doubt, amazed, no doubt, and she runs to tell Laban. Now, there's something for us to gather here with Jacob's approach. He has to grow in this area of waiting upon God, being patient with God's revelation of his will. It's often that we approach our decisions with our own outcomes in mind. We do it with spiritual lingo as believers, but we do everything on our own. Then we get to a certain point, and then we ask God to help, or we invoke God's blessing at that moment. Maybe you've had this happen, um, Christians in a gathering, and maybe, maybe you did something like I have done, where I've thought long and hard about what I want God's will to be. Or what I want something to look like, a a purchase or uh, a decision I'm making, a relationship, something about uh, an action I will take. I've already figured it all out in my mind, but I'm going to come to my prayer meeting and ask you to pray for God's will. Now, his will better be what I've been thinking already. Have you ever had that kind of thing happen? Where you already knew what you think it should be and you act as though we're going to pray about this now. The point is, from the very beginning, in the first episode, you had this this call of Abraham to the servant to go find Isaac a wife and seek this for God's covenant purposes. And the elder, Eleazar, he realizes this has got to be of God, and he soaks the whole thing in prayer, and he goes through this process, and there's this integration between his faith and his actions and his obedience. And it really shows in how he does it in this mature fashion. Whereas in the case we have with Jacob... He is manipulating like he usually does. It's not that he's not spiritual. Christians do this all the time. We just come to him lately as opposed to right away. Seeking him from the beginning about our actions and our life and our living. God is no less sovereign when we do this. But often it leads to certain, a certain amount of hardship and discipline and difficulty when we plow ahead of God. Much of the hard knocks that Jacob endures is because he's trying to run ahead of God, trying to manipulate situations on his own, then asking for God's approval later. Regular checkpoints are important in all of our lives for this. Hopefully, you have a relationship with your spouse like that. How many dumb decisions has my wife kept me from? One cannot number. But this is what we do for one another when we sometimes plow ahead. When we do want to ask each other for godly opinions on something we're about to do, be genuine when you're asking somebody. Because when they tell you that, no, it doesn't seem like that does match up with God's will, or have you thought about this or thought about that, if you're defensive and you ask them, then you can know that probably you're already bent on the answer you want. 
couldn't be more practical than this in our lives all the time. Now, that's the first half of the story, the, the faith that still got to develop in Jacob's life. We see where it's gotten him now. He's now, in a rela- he's now going to meet a man who is going to deceive the deceiver. He is about to meet his master as it relates to deception. He thought he was good. Laban's really good when it comes to this act of deception and swindling and slighting. Now we see God humbling Jacob to make the faith that Jacob has more practical. The more humble we are, the faith God's given us takes on more application in our life. We look for his will more because we're humbled by the fact that usually when left to our devices and our decision, it doesn't go so well. But Jacob hasn't had much of that in his life yet. Only a little bit. So this need for growth and humility and God's grace will be on full display with Laban. Look at verse 13. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him into his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. Now, pause for a moment. What did he tell him? Now, do you remember once again back to the story of Abraham and his servant? The servant, when he met Laban and Nahor, what did he tell him? He told him, told Laban and Nahor, that Isaac is the son of Abraham. Abraham was called from the Ur of the Chaldees by God, Almighty God. And Almighty God promised Abraham he would make him a great nation. And he would bless all the nations. He tells the covenant of grace story to Laban and Nahor so that they would give Rebekah to Isaac. This case, we only know, at least on display, that Jacob's saying, hey, I'm your relative. We're kin. Now that's powerful, and there's spiritual significance. Uh, For all I know, Laban went back and thought of all that, but there's no evidence that Jacob got into the covenantal significance of him marrying Rachel. It was on the earthly level of, hey, this is, this is amazing. I traveled all this way and I found you and I'm related to you. Laban said to Jacob, surely you are my bone and my flesh. So there's a, a great joy. Now that, that welcome doesn't last that long, but it lasts a month. So he stays with him a month. And we understand that there's some labor that happens. Jacob's working. He's not he's just sitting there lazily. He's probably helping tend the flocks and such. And a month goes by. Now, make no mistake, Laban is a shrewd one. He remembers the story. He remembers what happened when Eleazar came. What did Eleazar come with? Tens of thousands of dollars. Remember all that he poured out upon the family? What's Jacob got? Nothing. Not a thing so far. In fact, he's on the run from his older brother, and he can't go back anytime soon. Hmm. Laban sees an opportunity. He sees a vulnerable Jacob. Now, look at what he does. It's, it's masterful. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you're my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Okay, you know something's coming. What will your wages be? What should I be paying you if you're here with us? Well, the deceiver is about to get a taste of his own medicine. He's about to get to deceive, be, get to, uh, he's going to be deceived himself. Jacob's at his mercy, but Jacob doesn't know it. Now Laban had two daughters, verse 16. 
The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. We know Rachel already. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. This is a way of saying one was better looking than the other. And the eyes thing could be related to this. We don't know for positive. But in the ancient Near East, it was common for women to wear veils much of the day. Not just for modesty, but also for the, the sand and the elements and such. But it became known that you'd see women commonly with that kind of a covering. So you'd see their eyes, and that'd be the first thing you'd really see. And in this case, her eyes lacked the sparkle and the glow that Rachel's had. We understand what's being said here. He's attracted Rachel, not to Leah. Jacob, verse 18, loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. So he wants to make this deal with the wages. Now, Jacob's manipulating too. He knows he's got a long time to wait for Esau to cool down. So he can stand to spend some time here. Seven years is a long time, though. Nevertheless, he's still in this situation. He says, I'll give you seven years for your daughter Rachel in marriage. And Laban says, not necessarily the best thing you'd want to hear uh, the guy who's the father of your bride say, well, you're about the best there is around here, so we'll take you. Now, that's what any of us are going to say to any guy that comes to us for our daughter. Maybe even worse than that, I guess. That's kind of the spirit you get from Laban. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. What a romantic story. Then Jacob said, verse 21, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. Now, the scholars agree that the language, at least most agree, the language here is that of grievance. Give me my wife. In other words, it seems that the time had come, but Laban wasn't saying anything. He just kept going on. And Jacob got frustrated, and he demands, Okay, I fulfilled my seven years. Now give me my wife. Verse 22, So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. In antiquity, it was common to have a week-long marriage celebration. And what would normally happen or commonly happen, relatives would be invited or people would come, regularly, every day to celebrate. But the first day was a long feast filled with drinking and dancing and celebrating. And when it got dark, when dawn came, because there's not much for light in these, this part, and so as it got dark, that was the end of the day, and that's when the father of the bride would give his daughter to his, her new husband. And the groom would wrap his cloak around her and take her to his tent. Following that evening and the consummation of the marriage, then the next rest of the week, there would be feasts and celebrations that would follow it up. Some parts of the Middle East still do this. Week-long celebrations when someone gets married. It was dark. They're drinking. She would have been very covered up. Helps us understand what happens in verse 23. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. This is not uncommon to have a servant come with, especially in a rich family like this. So in essence, he's marrying two women when he marries the one. Now, I want to pause for just a moment and make a clarifying point about the issue of polygamy in the Bible, because it's often mischaracterized by critics of the Bible or of Christianity or Judaism. It's important just to explain how the Bible depicts this. The world in which the Lord intervened with his calling of Abraham, 
was largely pagan and drawn away from God at that moment, at that time. That's what makes it so special that he calls Abraham out of paganism. But that world that Abraham lived in largely practiced polygamy. It was the ancient Near East, and it was the norm there, especially for rich and powerful men to have multiple wives. Now, part of this would be to have multiple children to expand one's clan and one's power. Um, It was a practical purpose because they were still almost traveling city-states. We've seen that already. And so the bigger and stronger you are, the more you have workers for crops and and also for flocks, but also it just grew the family name and the and even the reputation of a growing clan being blessed by the gods before they understand, understood the true and living God. And through these multiple wives, they could have many more children. So personal dominion was a big reason for this. So for the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so forth, polygamy was the marital culture that they were surrounded with. But make absolutely no mistake, this is not God's design. This was not okay with God. These are sinful ways of expressing God's institution of marriage. No question. Nowhere is it ever endorsed. It's only ever shown as being a really bad practice. But that was the situation of the day. The marriage relationship, it's a one flesh union that's evidenced from Adam and Eve. Polygamy was tolerated at some degree for a time, But as the church, the people of God matured more, they became more in line with the Bible's description for what marriage is as time went. But even in the Old Testament, there was a moment when the prophet Malachi, well into Israel's history of rebellion, when God was was disgusted with Israel's lack of devotion in following of the nations around instead of following him. And Malachi, speaking for God, says, "'You cover the Lord's altar with tears, Israelites.'" with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. They're bringing their offerings. God was not accepting them. Then it says, but you say, why does he not? Because, the prophet says, the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Mary have godly offspring. One wife. One union. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. There was infidelity going on because any relationship outside of the marriage relationship is infidelity. So even in the Old Testament, this was getting called out in a culture that was rampant with polygamy. Then by the time of the New Testament, things are much clearer, especially for the people of God. Jesus himself speaks in this way in Matthew 19. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? It said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's just reciting Genesis. He's confirming God's design for marriage. So, Jesus says, they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. It is clear that monogamy between a man and a woman, this is the only ordained mode of marriage in the eyes of God. Multiple partners would be a violation of this relationship as God has ordained it. Now, a quick pause to comment on a common opposition I hear 
when people are advocating for other kinds of marriage, whether it be same-sex marriage or polygamy or other, uh, other kinds of arrangements where you don't get married, but you have these. And they'll say, Jesus never talks about that. Just you church people talk about this, but Jesus never addressed it. That's lazy and unfair when you see Jesus say what he says here. Jesus confirms the whole of the Old Testament. Have you not heard what is said? And he does so multiple times. So when he lays out what marriage is so clearly in Matthew 19 and in other places, he's necessarily eliminating anything outside of that picture. He absolutely does speak and address these issues every time he confirms the whole of the prophets in the law. And then he continues to explain further with more details about our relationships. And then the apostles, with that information, apply it even more clearly. But back to our text. In verse 23, in evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. He, he fools her. In the morning it was Leah, verse 25. And Jacob said to Laban, and I hope you remember the story of how Jacob fooled Isaac and Esau and now listen to what Jacob's saying. What is this you've done to me? Did I not serve you, serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Why then have you deceived me? What words for Jacob of all people, the supplanter, to say? Remember the words of Isaac to Esau when Esau realized he got swindled by his brother? Esau says, your brother came to me deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Now, the response of Laban, if it's not humiliating enough to fall prey to Laban like Jacob did, do you see what's happening? Jacob's being brought low from his pride and his manipulation. If it wasn't bad enough, Laban's response, hey man, I don't know what you do over there in Beersheba of Canaan, but you don't just get to marry the young one first. You got to marry the old one first. I'm sorry you didn't know that. Everybody here knows that, but you're a foreigner. That's just too bad. That's what he says to him. That's what he turns. It says, it's not, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. But I'll cut you a deal. Complete this week that consummate the fullness of the marriage in the week ceremony. And we will give you the other also in return uh, for serving seven more years. So, one week, the marriage is finalized. No question, he's married to Leah and her, and her handmaiden. Then you can marry Rachel and her handmaiden, and you could serve me for seven more years. Jacob loved Rachel so much, he, he was going to do whatever was asked. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhot to his daughter Rachel to be his, her servant. Jacob completed the marriage feast and then he took Rachel. It says in verse 30, very tragically for Leah, it's a sad story that her father put her up to on top of it. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. What a recipe for misery, the way this is unfolded. Not just two wives, they're handmaids too. You know, two weeks earlier, he was unmarried. Now he has essentially four wives to care for and all that that will involve. And much to those women's pain. Hughes, who I quoted earlier, said, Although Jacob was the elect son, he did not escape the consequences of his own sins. Far from being immune to discipline, God's children are often the object of special discipline. 
so many of these cliches ring true. What you sow, you will reap. You are tasting your own medicine. What goes around comes around. If you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. The chickens eventually come home to roost. It's time to pay the piper. Jacob was humbled and cut to the quick when he met his match in Laban. On the earthly level, he could not match Laban. This is so humbling to a man who would always, always overcome other people. He would have to start depending on God for his making his way in the world. For those things God said would happen for him in becoming a great nation, he couldn't do it his way any longer because there will always be another Laban. There's always someone smarter and more manipulative and slicker and cunning than you. As people of faith, our faith has to be integrated into the way we deal with people. And this is something Jacob has to now learn. Sometimes more grace comes in the form of more discipline, and we see God's grace in spades here. More trials are for the purpose of honing the person of Jacob. More challenging circumstances press Jacob more to trust God, less his own abilities. More difficult situations will cause us to ask God for help and deliverance. It's a great thing if God's blessed you with great skill in something you do, or great intelligence, or great experience. It's a great thing. But we have to be careful to recognize any of that is a gift from him. And if we rely on it in our flesh and not based on faith, that thing could end up drawing us away from God, rather than causing us to praise God. But if you're his child, his grace will to, be, to bring discipline in that situation that you think you're so skillful with. Maybe you won't be so skillful at that thing tomorrow. Anything could happen. God wants us to rest on him. This was a humbling preparation for Jacob, who eventually would no longer be called Jacob. He would be called Israel, the father of the 12 tribes. From the 12 tribes, eventually would come the Messiah. Jacob was living off the dream. He was living off the dream of the ladder, but it probably did not start out like he thought as he sat there thinking, I went from bachelor to to four wives, and for seven years working for Laban. The latter, it depicted commerce between heaven and earth, as one scholar said, that there is an actual spiritual reality working itself out in the here and the now, and God is sovereign over that process. God was working providence between heaven and earth, including Jacob's life and these events. So much grace poured out on Jacob. You know, when you think about it, He has 12 sons and one daughter born to these four women. Eight of the tribes will come from Leah. It may be true that Jacob mistreated and despised Leah, but God did not bless her with these eight tribes. In fact, one coming from Leah is Judah. From the tribe of Judah comes Jesus. From Leah, ultimately. God's work goes on and his grace is given despite even human failures. Because we know of the latter, that the latter really is looking ahead to the one who oversees it all. You remember when Jesus says to Nathanael, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The commerce for our souls will never cease until we are with the Son of Man. Jacob learns his need 
for a more integrated, practical faith, not to rely on himself so much. He understands a more devoted obedience and the blessing that comes from following God's will. He learns it the hard way often. He learns the need for more humility in less cunning manipulation and self-confidence. Once again, over and over, just like us, he is reminded of his dependence upon a constant outpouring of God's grace upon us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, there is much for us to glean here from this chapter of Scripture and in this snapshot of Jacob's life that we've just seen. Oh, that our faith in you might be more integrated into our everyday choices and actions. Lord, may we follow you over the practices of the world and the values of worldly people. Lord, we know that a broken and contrite heart you will not despise, but Lord, we do pray for your gentle touch to bring humility into our lives. Oh Lord, may we be a people who recognize your constant watch care and your loving providence, and it's according to your great grace through Jesus. Amen.